0: This is Bad Boys at the Eye, with your hosts, Mike Pate and Keith Black Trudeau. That's it, baby, and a foul! Hey, y'all put it in the front page, back page, middle page, wherever headliners, call on us, so and we will win game two. Good pick, you We will
1: win game two. The game's over, and the Pistons have won the world
0: championship! It's at seven, as Sellers gets it left corner, fires no, rebound Jordan.
1: Dumars went down, knocked down by Jordan, and Mahorn took Jordan down, and now the Bulls, of course, retaliate. we got a fist fight now. And all the folks on both teams are
0: involved. The thing that did surprise me was sitting on be- on the bench, and I had a folder in my hands, and uh, suddenly Johnny Bach was on top of uh, Mahorn. And I think, uh, you know, Doug, Went from inactive to active at that time. Then when he gets active, forget it. Mahorn shrugged him off like a dog uh, gets shrugged off by a bear. And uh, suddenly Mahorn was standing in front of me, and I thought I had him stopped. And Doug attacks him from the side for the second go round. But it was—I think it was a, a unifier. The fight was a unifier because uh, I think the spunk that Doug showed is always something that players admire in the coach. Sellers gets it left corner, fires no, rebound. Oh my god, he put Doug Collins through a table.
1: <laughs> that, that was as close as an NBA game will ever get to pro wrestling. Oh,
0: I love every minute of it. Welcome to back to Bad Boys and Beyond. I'm your host, Mike Payton. With me as always is Keith Black Trudeau. And if you can't tell from the video that we just played, we're talking Mr. McNasty today. Mr. Love Taps, Rick Mahorn is the uh topic of today's episode. I am super super excited uh i hope that you adjusted the bass in your car for phil jackson's voice because good lord that guy's got a deep voice (laughs) anyhow uh rick mahorn is what we got going on today keith are you pumped about this one because i definitely definitely am
1: i i usually am but i i have a little i mean this this episode is is a little bit special to me Rick, rick mahorn one of the true characters uh in in when i found out that google was doing so uh pull out a chair and uh enjoy this next hour or so we are going to get into the the very colorful very long very unique career of one rick mahorn there's
0: there's there's literally nobody else like him i mean there's just no one else like him uh before we do that uh you know we are recording this episode before the first preseason game so if you're looking for some sort of uh preseason talk from us you, you won't get it until next week's episode when there there will be actually two preseason games to talk about and we'll have all sorts of takes uh we're actually recording early today because we both really want to watch this game tonight um do you have any i guess before we get into the game uh uh is there anything you're looking for tonight? You know, so, so the people in the future could be like, oh, Keith was right when he said that. Or Keith was well, wrong when he said that.
1: Preseason NBA games are, they're a little bit like preseason NFL games is that they're generally disposable. You can't really take too much into the out of the results. Uh, but the, the the one difference is that the players on the floor are at least NBA players 90% of the time. You're not going to see the fourth quarter and you won't know the names of the guys that are playing. For the most part, uh, with the exception of two or three training camp invites, you're usually going to see at least guys that will make the team. Uh, I'll tell you what, I can't even remember the final scores of any of the games they played last year. I, I do. There is one one specific preseason game that I will always remember. Uh, when the Pistons hosted the Nets to their preseason opener in 1994, Grant Hill's debut. And- <laughs> I saw
0: the video you put up.
1: Yep, yeah, it was. I, I will. I look, I, I I don't even remember the final score for that one, but I do remember the, the Pistons had a really entertaining game. They won. Uh, Grant, Grant Hill, that's the reason I remember it. This was Grant Hill's uh, debut in front of Piston fans after he was taken third overall in that summer's draft. He starts off the opening game. Uh, Pistons get the tap. Joe Dumars uh, sees Grant Hill streaking towards the basket behind the defense, throws him a lob pass from damn near half court. Grant slams it down and that was his only, he dominated the entire game. That was far from his only memorable moment. It was just, and, and again, preseason does not matter. Don't read too much into it. Uh, maybe if one guy and another guy are, are fighting for a, a rotation spot, maybe the guy that plays better gets that spot to start the season, but he can just as easily play himself out of it in three games. I mean, we saw that last year, I think with um, Corey Joseph and saving Lee, where, they were kind of battling for the backup point guard spot, and Corey Joseph was just so much better than Saban Lee, uh, in preseason that it was just not a question. But for the most part, it, this is just something for fans to get refamiliarized with, you know, the, the team that they root for, and then the you you can start making real judgments uh, when the regular season begins.
0: Yeah, hey, I've been a Pistons fan my entire life. Tonight is the first preseason game I will ever watch, uh, so.
1: It, that, may I guess, the, it may be the first one that's ever been on tnt to my knowledge
0: yeah it's strange that it's getting national coverage well i guess it's not too strange when you have the you know uh jade ivy and obviously Cade cunningham is kind of becoming a yeah. big star in the league uh but yeah this is so that that should tell you everything you need to know about how i feel about the current pistons and how i am excited to watch a preseason game but anyways Let's get to the let's get to the real topic, what we came here to talk about. Mr. Rick Mahorn, let's flash back to the early days uh uh Rick Mahorn, we talked a little bit about this on the Lindsay Hunter episode uh about HBCUs and how rare it is for for NBA players to come out um on this side of you know history obviously as you had mentioned earlier in 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 the NBA's early days, a lot of players were coming out of HBCUs, but um Nowadays, at least in the 80s to now, it's kind of rare. Rick Mahorn is one of those players. He played for Hampton Institute back in the day. Uh, what What do we know about Rick, Maher, Rick Mahorn's Hampton days, if anything? What do we know about those days?
1: Uh, not much, especially. Uh, I, if there's any video at all of Rick Mahorn playing at Hampton, I don't know if it exists. Uh, ha- Hampton was known as Hampton Institute. Uh, back then, they were not raised uh, to university status until 1984. Uh, I'm not quite sure where Institute falls in the scholastic scheme of things, but Rick Mahorn for he, he dominated that that level just the way you'd expect a player with NBA pl- uh, talent to dominate that level. He was just a machine. Uh, 28.16 rebound average his, his senior year. Uh, to this day, he's really the only NBA player that's ever had a real career out of Hampton. Um, De- with all due respect to Devin Green, who had a cup of coffee, I think, with the with the Kobe Lakers sometime in the mid-2000s. But his entire NBA career was, I think, a third of a season. Uh, Rick Mahorn, to this day, is still really carrying the flag for Hampton. But, uh, yeah, it, he certainly shows enough talent where the NBA scouts are... Are keeping an eye on him. And he is taken with a early second round. Well, I'd say a mid-second round pick uh, in the 1980 draft by the Washington Bullets. And 35th well, pick in the
0: second round.
1: Yeah. Yep. And you would you would expect Rick Mahorn for some background information, enormous human being, six foot 10, 250 to, to he he pushes 300 bills, uh, depending on what stage of his career you're looking at him uh big physical power forward as far as skill goes uh pretty good post defender uh his his range was maybe mid-range at best i would say 10 feet was probably his range from the basket pretty pretty decent post player used fakes pretty well but definitely offensive skill was not his his bag his bag was intimidation and certainly in 1980, that's what NBA teams are looking for because we're still in the, the the physical days of basketball, where you know having an enforcer was a must, even if you had already had a big guy that was really skilled. So, I, I just, 76 was uh, still within uh, shot value. was uh, valued. Right, do, you, so, do you think there's any any
0: sort of enforcer role today? You know, would you call Draymond Green maybe like an enforcer no, of today's no, basketball? Not at
1: all. No, draymond, this... green, Dray, draymond <laughs> green would get thrown in a trash can in that. and i'm not one of these people that said basketball was better in 1980 i'm not right. but i'm just saying draymond green is a very skilled basketball player He is a god-awful shooter but he does everything else at a very high level he is out there because he is skilled uh, he is but if a fight breaks out i don't know if anyone's saying oh my god i hope draymond green doesn't come after me right he's like six five i mean i I think Charles Barkley may be the only really fearsome guy at 6'5 that I've ever seen. Uh, if you put Draymond Green in, in 1982, when the average power forward is seven feet tall, I, I'm not saying that he's a pushover, but he, he's de- he's definitely not a guy that NBA teams would look at and say, man, if, if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar gets into a fight, we want that guy to have his back. That guy that's like seven inches shorter than he is. I, I don't think so. All right. Well, uh, you know,
0: you had mentioned uh, off air that when when Rick Mahorn shows up in Washington, he's he's sitting behind two uh, two legendary players, two Hall yep. of Famers. But um, but then he he actually winds up having two pretty good years in Washington. Uh, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. So Rick Mahorn, his rookie season, I don't know if if you look at his numbers, you you'd assume that okay, it's a second round draft pick. He probably wasn't ready to play. I don't know that that's true, because when he gets drafted by the Bullets, they have uh, Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes. Granted, late-stage career, Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes, but these are two guys that led the Bullets to a championship a a few years prior. Uh, These are Hall of Famers. These are obviously guys, no no matter what he does, he's not going to take their minutes. And I think it's actually pretty cool that he uh, gets drafted to a team that already has Elvin Hayes, because Elvin Hayes very smart guy. Uh, undersized big man, but very wide big man, kind of body type, kind of similar to Mahorn. He he understood how to how to play the game mentally, despite not being terribly athletic. So I I, I would like to think Rick Mahorn learned a couple of tricks from Wes uh, just before he retired after uh, Rick Mahorn's rookie season. And yeah, like you said, uh, after uh, after Mahorn's rookie year, Wes Unseld is gone, and Elvin Hayes is gone. And so that starting uh, center spots wide open and Rick Mahorn moves right in and he's productive. And they uh, bring in a another future Hall of Famer, Spencer Haywood, to play next to him. So that's kind of like a Twin Towers dynamic right there. Uh, yeah, Spencer Haywood, a uh, Detroit guy <laughs> uh, out of uh, UD. And Rick Mahorn... I would say he has his most productive years of his career in Washington. Uh, His his second year, he's averaging 12 and a half points, which you might not blink at, but that was the high point of his career. And his second season, he averages a career best. He's almost averaging a a double, double uh, of 9.5 rebounds his his second season. And he's playing 30, like high thirties. Like he's playing a lot of minutes. And. After a while, Spencer Haywood is gone after a couple of years. I I think they teamed well, but Spencer Haywood, like uh, Anselin Hayes, was at the very end of his career, so he retires. And up uh, up steps a guy named Jeff Ruland. (laughs) And Jeff Ruland uh, in 1980, I would say 1983-84 is when Ruland moves into the starting lineup. And Ruland, uh, very much the same body type as Rick Mahorn, other than that he's a white guy. Like other than that, they're 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 almost like the, the same like physical enforcer types. The only difference is Ruland is much more skilled offensively. He could he could actually score in bunches if you took him lightly. And Johnny Moles, the the radio announcer for the Celtics, uh, the the ultimate homer to this day. He uh, he nicknamed them McFilthy and McNasty, uh, which and I believe Mahorn was McNasty. But they, they were, despite Bullets being a, a thoroughly mediocre team, they had this reputation of being a, a dirty physical team because of Ruined and Mahorn. And so the, the thing is, Jeff Ruin kind of overshadows Rick Mahorn at, at some point because those first two years, Jeff Ruined is so good uh, offensively. His numbers are so good. He makes the all-star team. And meanwhile, Mahorn's minutes start to go down a little bit. Uh, his production goes down a little bit. Not It was very high to begin with, but the bull, the Bullets, and we talked about this in the 19, I want to say it was the 1984 draft where the, the Bullets made, make a big trade on draft They Bring a guy named Cliff Robinson, who is a much more talented offensive power forward than uh, Rick Mahorn. So you can not, see- Not him. Uncle
0: Cliff, not Uncle Cliff,
1: right. the right. other Cliff. This was a different <laughs> Cliff Robinson. Yep. Yeah, this was late 70s, mid 80s, Cliff Robinson. And you can see them kind of phasing him in as Mahorn's minutes uh, start to dip a little bit. And one team uh, that's looking, paying attention to that situation is the Detroit Pistons. And Jack McCloskey, the great GM of the Detroit Pistons, uh, he is having an awful time trying to find a power forward. He's been GM of the Pistons for six years now, he's got all the guard. Positions locked down. He's set there. He's got this sweet shooting small forward in in Kelly Tripuka. And he's got a center in Bill Lambier that's already entrenched himself as an all-star. And for whatever reason, he just cannot find that fifth starter to to move in and play power forward next to Lambier. And currently they had a guy named Dan Roundfield. And that was McCloskey's first big attempt to get this former all-star from Atlanta. And Roundfield... Uh bit undersized, 6'8, 210, 15 pounds. Uh, very pretty athletic, uh, pretty good offensive player, but he was just not good enough defensively. He was hurt all the time. And it wasn't the type of uh forward that McCloskey was looking for. He was he this is at the point where he wanted to transition the Pistons into something better defensively. So he trades roundfield to Washington uh, for Rick Mahorn, and this is the, the great uh, exchange that takes place. And as you, as you and I, and everybody else that watched the the Thirty for Thirty Bad Boys documentary knows, Mahorn shows up to Detroit, it, and at this point his he was already getting his minutes taken away in Washington. His career was not in a great place, and he shows up uh, fat and out of shape, and. Yeah yep uh bill ambier who is mr business uh he he is all about getting getting the work done and he calls rick Morn out immediately uh for being fat and out of shape and i don't know that they were on good terms for a while or isaiah thomas for that matter because he was of the same mind
0: and and rick even mentions in that um in that espn 30 for 30 uh the bad boys one that i i love which was actually on during pistons day there last week uh that he didn't like isaiah you know he hated hated isaiah's smile and he wanted to get that smile is what he would say every time i saw that smile and get that smile but it's funny that they trade round roundfield who's undersized for a guy who's clearly oversized, oversized. Yes. yeah uh so when when does Mahorn really start to kind of uh, fit in with with this Pistons team? When does he get into shape? When does when does all that start to happen?
1: And and this is the thing for the people that watch the documentary, you kind of get the impression that Mahorn, uh, after getting uh, embarrassed the first day of camp by his teammates, he oh he immediately learns his lesson. He he starts working out and everything is he he just fits in seamlessly. No, that's actually not the case. It it stays that way for quite a bit. Uh, Rick Mahorn, that first uh, season in 80, 85, 86, keep in mind, they bring him in to be a starting power forward. Like that's the intention. They were very clear on that. Mm-hmm. And Rick Mahorn, uh, the, the Pistons start out terribly uh, that the first like half of that season. And a lot of it was because Mahorn had no place on the floor. He was too slow. He couldn't run with Isaiah in transition and on defense, trying to play power forward. Even in the 80s, the the quicker perimeter bigs were just going right by him. He just he didn't have the stamina. He didn't have the foot speed. Uh, He needed to lose weight and get in better shape. And that just wasn't happening. So his, his minutes, if you look at his first season in Detroit, he's only playing 18 minutes a game. And this is a guy that played 37 minutes a game in Washington at one point. And he gets benched for Kent Benson, who was the guy that they brought him in to replace. And I think Earl Curitan started at power forward in the playoffs that year. It was just a mess. And we, we go into 86, 87, and the Pistons – Jack McCloskey has kind of given up on Rick Mahorn. Uh, he, he, he goes and trades for another power forward, a guy named Sidney Green. Uh, re, I think it was rebounding machine, Sidney Green was, <laughs> was his nickname. A uh, Former top five pick, uh, I want to say early in the 80s by the Bulls. And Sydney Green, a lot like uh, Dan Roundfield, a uh, little bit uh, on the, I don't want to say short, but he was a little bit on the thinner side, very athletic, who so could could score a lot of points. But once again, not the type of player that that they needed next to Bill ambier So uh, Roundfield, uh, or excuse me, not Roundfield, um, Sydney Green, Sydney, he starts the season in 86-87. And he doesn't play well, even though the Pistons are clearly playing much better because they've acquired uh, also Adrian Dantley and and John Salley and Dennis Rodman. The, their talent level is much higher, so they're they're still winning games, but Sidney Green is uh, is struggling. So,
0: and you can see that struggle if you DVR'd the Christmas game because yeah. uh, <laughs> he struggles in that game mightily.
1: Yeah, so. Uh, McCloskey makes another move, uh, trades a first round pick for a guy named Kurt Nymphis. Uh, this was his desperation level at this point. Yes, Kurt Nymphis, of all people, uh, that you would not know, uh, even if you were a Pistons fan, you wouldn't know this guy, uh, unless you saw the uh, the beautiful mullet that he, had.
0: yeah, I don't remember this guy, mullet, and, uh, he's mullet, this or guy
1: that's on the Pistons bench during the 87. 87- yep, so. So Kurt Memphis comes in and he immediately moves into the power forward spot for five games and it again it just isn't working out. So, so Chuck Daly throws up his hands and says Mahorn just get in there. Um I have nobody left. We're you're giving we're giving you another shot. So Mahorn finally gets his first start of the season in game 76 just before the playoffs and he is so effective that he starts the last six games plus the entire postseason which was I want to say 15 games that they played that season and he plays well. I mean, he's still not in great shape, but he's in good enough shape where he he's very effective on the floor and the, he's making everyone else better because he's making them better defensively. He's being the enforcer. He's being the, the solid low post defender. He was pretty effective against uh, Mahorn and Parrish in, in the, in the playoffs in that series. So despite them losing in the conference finals, uh, it was, uh, it, it was a very good experience for Rick Mahorn because it convinced Chuck Daly and the rest of the, the franchise that he should get another shot. So 1987, 88 is when we really see, uh, the Rick Mahorn that we remember in, in Detroit.
0: This is when, uh, when Rick starts, um, this is when Rick starts swinging some fists, and and, uh, stuff like this happens. 76ers still within shouting distance. It's a seven-point game. Nearly
1: four minutes of this quarter have elapsed. Benny Johnson came off the pick. Guns. In and out. Rebound Mahorn. Barkley fouled him. And uh uh-oh. Barkley slapping Mahorn in the face. Barkley challenging Mahorn. Ricky, Wise, though, to back off? Now that's going to cause Barkley something. Do you toss him here or not? Mahorn did not throw a punch. He challenged him verbally, and Barkley
0: with the open fist. You got, you got to love watching that video. And Rick is just smiling the whole time because he's like him and Lambir together, the ultimate antagonizers. They knew they were going to annoy the hell out of you one way or another. Uh, yeah, this is and 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 this is just one of the fights that that Rick Mahorn's uh, remembered for. I mean, what you know, there's there's the Dominique Wilkins one, which I'm sure we could touch on. There's the Michael Jordan one that we did at the top of the show, uh, or Doug Collins, I should say. Um, are we leaving any out? I mean, Rick Mahorn seemed to fight with everybody in the NBA back
1: then. Yeah, 87-88 80, was really Rick Mahorn's by far his best uh, season as a Piston. He, his, he's now starting just about every game. Uh, he's having some back issues, which limits him by the backup. He's averaging double-digit points again, uh, eight rebounds. And at this point, he is taking ownership uh, of the bad boys, as he's now stepped in as one of their their leaders in the locker room. And... And here's the difference between Rick Mahorn and Bill Ambeer. Bill Ambeer's goal was always to agitate you. He never wanted to fight because getting into a fight, you would risk ejection. And his, his it was all a means to an end with him. His goal was to win, to get, and his aim to do, uh, to do that, to win games was to get the other guy thinking about him and not, not winning basketball. Uh, Rick Mahorn wasn't quite as cerebral about that. Rick Mahorn, if you tested him, he was more than happy to oblige you. Uh, Lambeer rarely threw the first punch. Rick Mahorn would throw the first punch if, if he felt disrespected enough, but that was the thing. Lambeer would get people agitated enough, but 90% of the time there was no fight because the, the other guy would look over next to Lambeer and there's Rick Mahorn. And it's like looking at a, like a, like at a, a bouncer or a, a personal protector or something. It was, uh, I mean, yeah, I could fight Lambier, but then I'm gonna have to fight him too. Yeah, it's it, and then it would just simmer over, and the guy would get a technical foul or uh, make a stupid play or whatever. And if he didn't get ejected, he'd have a horrible game. And that was always the mind game that was going on with the bad boys. But at this point, yeah, Mahorn and Lambier are are kind of uh, they're they're kind of hitting it off now uh Mahorn is in really good shape he's playing and if if you recall um they had that great poster together with the with the the leather gloves uh yep yep. and that was like the that was like the bad boys poster was that Mahorn and Lambier uh with the skull and crossbones logo in the background but yeah uh, Rick Mahorn uh has a really good season gets into several fights that we've mentioned uh one that we haven't yet even though we touched on at the beginning of this episode uh with the chicago bulls where jordan michael jordan goes baseline and rick Mahorn is had enough and he just clotheslines him and uh, as john sally put it we did not fight the bulls in that game rick Mahorn fought the bulls in that game uh the entire bulls team comes over uh Obviously, that's the MVP of the league that you just line. So, of course, the Bulls are going to uh, try to retaliate somehow. And they really couldn't because Mahorn could was capable of beating every one of them up. There was just no – even Oakley, I don't think, was any match for Mahorn. So, the first, co- the first coach that gets involved is uh, Johnny Bach, uh, one of the great assistant coaches uh, ever – But he's in, his, I think, his early uh, 60s at that point. So he has no business being over there with an enraged Rick Mahorn. And as soon as that happens, you see Doug Collins do a dead sprint. Doug Collins, at this point, he's a head coach, but he still hasn't quite retired mentally from being a player. So he he tries to kind of pull Rick Mahorn away from behind, and Rick Mahorn doesn't know who's pulling at him. He just knows that he's being attacked. So he takes uh, Doug Collins and just – you know tosses him away like Bill Jackson said like he's not a threat and then Doug Collins comes right back and then Rick Mahorn uh just 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 to make sure he doesn't do it a third time just shoves him over the scores table like like it's a wrestling match and he's shoving a guy out of the ring it's hilarious uh but that that was that was really uh Rick Mahorn at, at his best and I hate to say that because that's not really part of basketball but it was from a mental standpoint, you you would have had to be there in the 80s to really understand it was part of the game back then, whether you like it or not. It's so. funny
0: because, you know, Michael Jordan was
1: he he said he even said it
0: like I don't know if he said it verbatim, but uh, they're, they're trying to end my career. They're trying to hurt me and blah, blah, blah. And he really I think Michael just took it. He's still he's still not over. Yeah, it. he's still not over. It.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, and I, I get it. I'm not the one that was being attacked, so it's hard for me to put myself in Michael's shoes. But if they really wanted to end his career, they would have. Michael Jordan never had to leave a game because of something the Pistons did to him, let alone, you know, miss time. It's They, they played physical. I don't think they ever really crossed a line with him, even though you would look at what they did today and say, oh, that's, we can't have that. And we can't, we we don't have that today. But back then we did. That was that was what was Allowed within the framework of the game. Uh, I mean, we didn't have the flagrant back then, but the referees could still toss you if you did something, if if they felt you were a danger to the game. And at that point, point, uh, it it was legal. So I think we need to kind of leave that one alone, Yeah, but go ahead.
0: Uh, well, to touch on something, we had talked about the 88 season and, and I, I believe you had mentioned this on a previous episode. So, um, after the '88 season, there was an expansion draft, and Rick Mahorn. '89
1: C. Oh, 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 you mean the first one? Yes, the I'm first sorry. one. Yeah, on. the yep. first yep. one. You're right. Uh,
0: and and Rick Mahorn was desired during that. Uh, uh, you know, th- talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So this is the really interesting thing. All right. So in '88, uh, after the season ended, and the Pistons made their great run to the finals. Our Rick Mahorn, uh, he was kind of limited in the in the postseason a little bit. He he was still effective, but he couldn't play as many minutes because he was having back spasms, and there was an issue there. So he started, but he wasn't really playing as often as he used to, which was great because that meant Rodman and Sally got to play more. So I don't think Chuck Daly was in any mood to force it. So after the after the season, uh, we had the NBA had this expansion draft between the Miami Heat and the Charlotte Hornets. And basically for people at home that don't understand what an expansion draft is and and why would you, we haven't had one in uh, 17 years. So uh, basically how it works is uh, every NBA team is allowed to protect a certain number of players on their roster. Uh, I think it was nine back then. And whatever, like say you had uh, 12 players you really liked, you could only uh, protect nine of them. And then the the other players that you didn't protect, the other three, four, five, whatever, uh, all went into this pool called the expansion pool. And any team in an expansion draft could pick one of your players. Now, only one. If they picked one, that means you got to keep all the rest. You couldn't lose two players in one draft. But you, you had to leave yourself vulnerable, is my point. And uh, back then, it was eight, actually. So the Pistons unfortunately had a nine man, really solid nine man rotation, the best in the league. And they had to leave one of their rotation players uh, unprotected. And in 1988 uh, with Rick Mahorn having such a, a, a comeback season, uh, they were scared to death of losing him. So they actually protected him and they left Vinnie Johnson unprotected uh, because they reasoned that he was older and he was paid a lot. And with the salary cap suddenly becoming a thing, uh, that neither expansion team would be, uh, in any hurry to take on his salary at, at his age, because it just wouldn't be worth it. So, which is also odd because you still think he would have trade value to a contender, but they did it. And as it turns out, the Pistons didn't lose Vinny Johnson, um, I, I forget who el- who got drafted instead, but it was somebody else that was on a minimum salary. Uh, Ralph Lewis, that's who it was. Oh, I was going to kick myself if I remembered it later. Yeah, Ralph Lewis gets uh, drafted, I think, by, I want to say by the Hornets. And Vinny Johnson gets saved by the Pistons. And we move on to the 89 season. So Mahorn, uh, best shape of his life. He's looking trim. Yeah. And he's yep he's coming off of back surgery so his he's not getting quite as many minutes as he was the year before, not to mention with James Edwards firmly in the fold after they acquired him uh, at the deadline uh, in '88. Now he's getting a lot of time. Mahorn is still the starter. Don't get me wrong, but he he's more of a a leadership guy. He they're they're not expecting him to play 30 minutes a game anymore. He he's still effective, just not in his. Uh, as much time so uh horn's still pretty good uh obviously the the pistons went 63 games uh that season with him as the starter next to lambeer and they go on as we all know they they kind of coast their way uh in the playoffs in 89 they win their championship and in what i think is kind of like uh one of the cruelest twists really in nba history there is a, there is a second expansion draft in 89, and this one features two more new teams, uh the Orlando Magic and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And once again, Jack McCloskey has to protect eight players. And here's the problem: Vinny Johnson has his has a bounce back here in 89. He is much better. He plays tremendously in the in the NBA finals. And McCloskey, for whatever reason, is afraid that. This time around, someone might actually take him. And he sees Rick Mahorn with his back issues, not playing as much. Vinny is still playing a lot of minutes. So he sees Vinny as being more valuable than Rick Mahorn, unfortunately. So he protects Vinny this time around, leaves Rick Mahorn unprotected. And I don't think McCloskey was under any illusion. No matter who he let unprotected that time, they were the champions. They were going to lose somebody important. It, they weren't going to get lucky a second time. So, and, and again, I go back to this, this is really cruel that they had this expansion draft during the Pistons championship parade. It, it was really, it was really, really mean. Like today, I don't think they would do They would, they would hold it off or they would have the, there was something, they, they would never let that happen today because that was just so cruel to Rick Mahorn for him to achieve this dream of his career, uh, Hoisting the championship trophy uh downtown, uh, go to this uh, rally at the palace, uh, only to be told, you know, just after uh well, really, while it was still going on towards the end, uh, he was told that he was he was taken. He was no longer a piston, just like that, just snap of the finger. Uh you're no longer a bad boy. Sorry. And Unbelievable. yep. And the The interesting thing was that McCloskey, Orlando had the first pick in the expansion draft over Minnesota. So they got first dibs and Rick Mahorn was kind of the highest profile player in that pool. So everyone assumed that Orlando was going to pick Rick Mahorn. So McCloskey, the entire time while they're having this braid is on the phone with Pat Williams, who was the, who was running Orlando at the time, begging them not to take Rick Mahorn. He was offering a first round pick. And you know, whatever small stuff he could scrap together for his troubles. But the problem is the Pistons were the champions. So their first round pick was inherently the least valuable of any, of any teams. So they weren't gonna outbid anyone. Uh but as it turns out, Orlando doesn't even take Rick Mahorn with the first pick. They take drum roll, please, none other than one Sidney Green, the <laughs> player that Mahorn replaced it all Detroit. comes back around it all, it comes, all comes back to around, back around. Yep. and he was with i believe he was with the knicks at that point he had gone to new york and kind of rehabilitated his career a little bit but they take sydney green over Rick mahorn <laughs> i and i to this day i still can't, can't understand pat's logic but i don't need to because eventually they do shuffle uh sydney green off for a first round pick themselves so it wasn't in hindsight it didn't burn them that much but or uh Minnesota, who has the second pick, they don't need any time in deciding. They take Rick Mahorn immediately. And Rick Mahorn, as you can imagine, he's in his 30s at this point, no interest in joining an expansion team. Uh, He threatens to go play in Italy uh, if they don't trade him. And so Minnesota obliges him. Uh, Just before the season starts, they trade Rick Mahorn to – and the Pistons, of course, are still trying to get him back. They just don't have the assets. Again, their, their first-round pick is – if anyone else is offering a first-round pick, theirs is going to be better. So, Rick Mahorn, so Philadelphia winds up getting Rick Mahorn for a first-round pick in a couple of seconds. And he goes to Philadelphia and really has a better year in Philadelphia than he ever had in Detroit statistically. Uh, because all of a sudden, uh, he is now playing – he's back – Playing over thirty minutes a game because he's. If you look at Philadelphia's roster in nineteen ninety, he's arguably their third best player behind Charles Barkley and Percy Hawkins. But, uh, San Francisco, or excuse me, San Francisco, uh, Philadelphia, uh, they they go with this super jumbo lineup with Mike Jaminski at center, Mahorn at power forward, and Barkley at small forward, and for whatever reason, it just works. Uh, they they maul the the NBA in nineteen ninety, despite. Not having a whole lot of talent, uh, they 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 were like the surprise team in the league that year. Uh, the the chemistry was great between Mahorn and Barkley, as you can imagine. Uh, Mahorn's still in great shape from his Pistons years; he's pretty productive, playing a lot of minutes. All of a sudden, his his back is right again. Uh, and Philadelphia wins fifty three games that season. They were they were the second seed in the East in nineteen ninety when a lot of people were predicting them to struggle to make the playoffs. I mean, it was just a huge turnaround for the Sixers that year. Barkley uh, famously does not win MVP. He very well should have, he got the most first place votes, but enough people just didn't like him that they left him off the, off their ballot. So Magic Johnson kind of snuck in through the back door and beat him on points, but that's one of the great robberies uh, that 1990 MVP vote. Uh, But yeah, it was that Mahorn couldn't have landed in a better spot. Uh, after, uh, leaving Detroit and, you know, he he saves a fair measure of revenge for the Pistons. Uh, Philadelphia is Detroit's nemesis that season that they spanked them three times and really should have beaten them a fourth time. It took a, a miracle comeback at the buzzer for the, for the Pistons to beat the Sixers just once. And that, that, that all kind of ties up, uh, last the home finale for the Pistons that season, uh, Rick Mahorn and Bill Lambier really get into it, and it was kind of a I don't know if, I don't know if it was a serious thing or if it was just a messing around thing that got serious. But uh, Rick Mahorn at the very end of that game, Sixers are I think it was just a few seconds left. The Sixers are up double figures. They don't need they don't even need to shoot the ball. They can just let the clock run out. But no, Rick Mahorn goes ahead and dunks on Dennis Rodman, and Bill Lambier takes offense to it, shoves the ball in his face and we get this entire, uh, brawl, like the biggest brawl of the year, uh, touches off with Rick Mahorn facing off. Charles Barkley jumps in there, uh, does not win the fight with Bill (laughs) Ambier. Uh, Bill, Bill Ambier, uh, just has him on height, has him on reach, has him on pretty much everything. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of Rick Mahorn's, um, bringing his own signature, uh, unique style so to say to the Sixers and even though they got stomped in the playoffs in the second round by Chicago because they just didn't have the talent to compete in the postseason I I would like to think that that Rick Mahorn was kind of their most valuable player uh, after Charles Barkley that year because it was if if you look at how they were the year before to how they were in 1990 it was just a total turnaround in attitude toughness everything even though the roster was mostly the same other than they added Rick Mahorn so
0: yeah, his, his uh, run in Philly it it's not as long as is it seems like it was. It was only two years, and then he goes mm-hmm. to play for uh, a team in Italy for a year. Um, kind of a strange thing, but you would kind of mention that uh, he some back injuries earlier, and plus nobody yeah. was nobody wanted to to pay for Rick that year, so he headed on over to to Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he comes back, and Chuck Daly is now coaching the New Jersey Nets. And he brings in Rick Mahorn to join him. Let's talk a little bit about that Nets run, if there's much to talk about at all.
1: Yeah, so, and and it was kind of a sad end for Rick Mahorn because I don't think he would have been playing uh, in Italy if the Pistons had kept him. But the Sixers in 91 were in in rebuild mold. They, They were already looking to trade Charles Barkley. So they just declined Rick Mahorn's option year for that year. And Italy was offering... You know more money than he could probably get in the league so he he left and i i think i don't even know if he would have come back to the nba if it weren't for chuck daly um reaching out to him uh chuck daly the great coach of the pistons had left uh, uh the team to join the nets uh is in his absence and yeah, Rick Mahorn comes back. He's no longer a starter. He's in his mid thirties at this point, but he's he's still pretty productive. He's no longer in the you know outstanding shape he was in Philadelphia and Detroit, but uh, he's still productive. He's still uh, a, a decent backup center, which is really all they needed. They, the Nets were a playoff team for the most part <laughs> uh, with Chuck Daly, but as soon as Chuck Daly left, uh, the Nets kind of fell apart. Uh, it's weird because he was Rick Mahorn was in New Jersey for I think four seasons, and yeah, after after the first, yeah, after the first two, Chuck Daly retires, and then they're semi-competitive in '95, but not really, and in '96 they're just terrible. So you you would think this was uh, and at age thirty-seven, you think this was where Rick Mahorn's career kind of ends, right? Uh, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't. Uh, his Rick Mahorn's career uh, continues on for I think a, a year seventeen of his career, and uh, who else uh, would acquire him other than the man that he threw over a scores table ten years prior, uh, Doug Collins, who is the now the head coach and general manager of the Detroit Pistons, uh, sees certainly he has a young uh, upcoming team in Detroit, and they definitely need some toughness and veteran leadership. So he he certainly sees the value in a man that would throw him over a scores table. So he, he brings in Rick Mahorn at age 38 uh, to be the third string center, really, on the, of the Pistons. He doesn't play that often. But when he does, let me tell you, he is effective, uh, despite being old, despite being uh, uh, out of shape, just he, he almost turns he kind of turns into Bill lambambi like he uses all those lessons that he learned in the 80s and he becomes this this guy that outthinks you and what he develops and he kind of dabbles in this in his prime but really once once uh he comes back to the Pistons in the late 90s uh we have this move called pulling the chair and it's where you when when you're defending the post and the post player is backing you down and you put a forearm, into the guy that's trying to back you down and you you push a little bit makes him push a little harder and it's kind of this tug of war where you're going back and forth and you anticipate when he's going to back in and you just step away and all that leverage just gets erased and what happens is especially with the guy that's seven feet tall he's going to lose his balance and he's not going to get it back and, and rick Mahorn would do this god he must have done this uh two or three times a game when he when they actually put him in there and it was just hilarious because everyone from Shaq to Vin Baker, to, to Luke Longley, to uh, everybody got victimized by this because it was such a unconventional move that I don't, I don't, I don't want to give Rick credit for inventing this, but he was definitely the first one that used it as like a primary weapon to where players were kind of scared to post up Rick Mahorn. They would just immediately, get into their shooting motion instead of trying to get closer to the basket. It was pretty crazy because Rick does not at all look like he deserves to be out there. Like this is at this point, he looks like he would get abused on defense. And instead the Pistons sit. And again, small sample size, he doesn't play much for the Pistons those two years, but when he does, they are two to three points better defensively and defensive rating uh, per 100 possessions than they were with him off the floor yeah it, it, it is it is nuts because even as a kid watching him play I'm thinking why is he out there and then <laughs> you know they the Knicks would throw the ball to Patrick Ewing and then he'd stumble to, he'd stumble to the ground like a three-year-old learning how to walk it was it was uh man uh it, it, it was it was pretty comical but it was also kind of a tribute to Rick Mahorn for finding a way to stay, to keep himself relevant as an NBA player, uh, really until his 40th birthday.
0: Yeah, it's, it was a really interesting thing. I remember when, when it was announced that he was coming back to Detroit, it's like, is he still even in the NBA? Yeah. Like, I mean, I knew that he played for the Nets, but that's like, he's 38 years old, man. But but, but it worked you know he pulled out those little veteran those uh moves like the you know like you had mentioned the uh pulling the chair and stuff like that I, I, people should be doing that more often now if you ask me um
1: well, I, I think the problem is you don't see post-ups that often anymore yeah like, it, it, there's not I mean you still see them occasionally but it's not like this big physical uh like test of machismo like it used to be where you had one strong guy trying to Trying to outmuscle another strong guy—it's usually like a finesse thing now. But yeah, it, it, look, don't get me wrong—I would love to see it at some point. Like, like sit, like if Isaiah Stewart—if if you're listening to this, I know you're not, but if you are, like if you would try that once on Zion Williamson, I would just be flattered. Yes,
0: I would uh, absolutely. I'm sure Rick would too, because would
1: Rick not. Mahorn is still doing <laughs> Pistons radio, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where he's been since he retired uh, at age 40. Uh, he he was an assistant coach with his buddy Bill Lambier with the Shock. Uh, they won, won some championships together, and after uh, Bill Lambier, uh, he he leaves uh, towards the end of his Shock career uh, to be an assistant with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Irony and. Uh, Rick Mahorn is technically their head coach for that, that last, you know, two thirds of a season before the the shot get dismantled and shipped off to Tulsa. And I know I'm not going to get into that, but I'm still bitter over it.
0: Yeah. It still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't, I don't know why uh, that even happened. Uh, according to um, his, uh, his basketball reference page, he does play 16 games at the age of 40 with the Philadelphia 76ers. Um uh, Obviously, I don't remember anything of that. You you clearly don't remember any of that either.
1: No, I, I a, remember that. A
0: farewell type thing.
1: Yeah, it, it was – I don't know if it was a ceremonial thing. Because I know – but Larry Brown is now the coach of Philadelphia in 99. He's, he's trying to get the Sixers back into the playoffs. So, I, I can get it from that. I'm sure his logic was much the same as Doug Collins was when he brought him in. But obviously, yeah, he just – at that point, he just didn't have it anymore. I'm not sure if he even lasted the whole season, or if that was just the 16 games was spread out over the course of the season. Uh, I, I think he did make the playoffs, but I, I don't. I don't remember Colony memorable moments. Unfortunately, it's it's
0: it's sad because if I feel like there could have been a great Allen Iverson, Rick Mahorn moment out there that we just we just we just missed out on it, or, or if it happened, we don't. I I don't remember seeing it, but. Well, that's that's Rick Mahorn's career. Uh, now we get to the two big questions that we always ask. Uh, first off, what is Rick Mahorn's legacy? Is it, for me, he's the he's the baddest of the bad boys. I mean, that's that's what you always you know. He's the guy that that it was he was going to fight you. He was going to get aggressive. He was going to love tap you. He was going to do all that. But but what is um, you know beyond that? Is there is there any other type of legacy for Rick Mahorn in, in the NBA and with the Pistons?
1: No, you kind of nailed it. Um, as I said previously, uh, Bill Lambert was the original bad boy, but uh, Rick Mahorn, I think was the ultimate bad boy. It was just his, his entire, uh, well, not his entire, but once he really started in, uh, embracing the bad boy philosophy, he was like, He was like their ultimate poster boy he was uh he was the the like the big everybody's big brother in the locker room and including kind of Mahorn they were like they were almost like brothers at the end uh uh, towards the end of his time in Detroit and I I look obviously the Pistons proved that they could win a championship without Rick Mahorn in 1990 but I don't know if they would have gotten their confidence to that point if Rick Mahorn hadn't kind of guided them there and been that, that big brother, that support system, uh, to get the Detroit to that point. But, yeah, I, I think – and I, it's weird because he, I'm sure Sixers fans have some nostalgia for him for that, that magical 1990 season that they had. Well, for the most part – I think, I think Mahorn's legacy is certainly tied to Detroit. And I, I Mahorn certainly feels that way because he's still here, you know, uh, 20 years after he retires. He, he's, he's still in Detroit, still embracing uh, the, the culture here, still working as an analyst uh, for Pistons Radio. So I, I think his legacy is very much tied uh, to Detroit.
0: Yeah, he's one of those guys that you you know you always hope for when you're a fan that's just gonna always be around. Um, he'll he'll maybe leave for a little while, but he'll always come back. And uh, he's just a Detroit guy, you know, like Barry Sanders or uh, you know, they, you name it. They're, he's a Detroit Joe Dumars. He's a Detroit guy. Like that's that's who he is. Um, and then you know the other question is, can he play in today's NBA? And I'm going to go ahead and say that he cannot play in today's nba i just don't i just don't see a a way where a guy like him at his size um athleticism is not uh that high and 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 the nba is a super athletic game now i i I just don't see where he can fit in but maybe i'm wrong what do you think
1: Uh, i would counterpoint to the fact that stephen adams is still in the nba uh (laughs) uh 10 years later and he's still getting paid so (laughs) And Stephen Adams is a very much an '80s throwback guy. Uh, he's maybe a better passer than the t- typical '80s center, but for the most part, he's he's big, he's intimidating, he's floor bound. Those are all things that had, Rick Mahorn had in common. Now, if Rick Mahorn was ever out of shape today, like he was in the uh, mid '80s, no one would ever give him a look, and he wouldn't have he would never have a chance for a career. So then that would have been nipped in the bud very quickly. He would have had to choose between his career and, you know, his eating habits. But the Rick LaHorn that was in Detroit in 89 and 88 in Philadelphia in 1990, I think that – I would like to think that that guy would have a place in the NBA. Maybe you wouldn't start him, but as long – it's not like the NBA is totally devoid of players like him now. There are a lot less, I grant you, but there are still guys – uh, even like an Andrew Bogut type, where they're out there as like a defensive anchor, even though they're not terribly athletic, they're they're still good around the rim. They're still good rebounders, and they're still you know somewhat intimidating. And I I can't promise you that Mahorn would have a career because as as I said in the beginning, he his skill level wasn't great. But I think there's there's a real chance that. Uh, in the right situation, I think he could have had a career. Maybe not what he had in the 80s, but I think he'd still have a career uh in the NBA in in some respect. Hmm.
0: Well, I guess I guess, you know, uh Steven Adams man, some real Steven Adams uh uh sass there, a little little dig into Steven Adams. Well,
1: uh, I mean, do <laughs> you remember Steven Adams had, who did he pick up like a child and carry across the floor? Oh, uh I, uh they, no, it, you know, it was a guy that played for the Bulls. It was like a 6'10", like, it was like a prototypical, like, uh, uh, Tony Bradley, I think it was. Tony Bradley, who was a really tall guy, but it was like a typical, like, 6'10", 6'11", like, skilled, but not very muscular um, 2020s big man. And Stephen Adams just picks him up like a child in an altercation. It just carries him from one spot to another. Like, like a parent giving a child a timeout. Like, that <laughs> To me, that's almost how I would see Rick Mahorn today, because he wouldn't be able to get into fights like he like he used to, but he he would still be able to show off like, I am the biggest, strongest dude in this in this building, and you probably shouldn't mess with me. I, I would like to think that Mahorn would have a moment like that.
0: I guess I wouldn't put it past Mahorn to be able to figure out a way to bend the rules a little bit in today's game. Yeah, that was
1: always his specialty. You're right. Yep. He would he would always go up right to the line.
0: Uh well that's gonna do it
1: for Rick Mahorn.
0: Oh. Uh oh wait, oh we not, got one more not, thing.
1: Not, not, no, I think you have something for us. Uh I believe you you had a, a post oh, yes, yes. This year with uh, us about yes. Rick Mahorn.
0: I got Rick Mahorn was the first basketball NBA player that I ever got to meet. Uh it was during the um uh, nineteen ninety seven season, I believe. It was against the New Jersey Nets. Um you actually gave me this game, this game tape, not long ago. This was like everybody was injured. Grant Hill was out. Joe Dumars was out. Everybody was out, but Rick was healthy. Uh, and there, my uh, stepdad brought me to this game. It was like my birthday uh, uh, present for that for that year. And uh, we were just kind of sitting. We were behind the court, uh, behind the the hoop, um, and we saw on the other side of the court there was like a bunch of kids gathering together. Uh, by where the Pistons come out or would come out at the Palace, and we we like ran over there and um I, and I I, was, I shook his hand and I talked to him and and we were like you know I wanted to get his autograph but I didn't have anything like to, for him to sign so I had him sign my T shirt um, and I I still have that T shirt actually and um it wasn't just Rick Mahorn though after after I met Mahorn and and he was very nice by the way. Uh, shook my hand and uh cracked some jokes. I can't remember what he said. It was so long ago. But uh Kenny the Jet Smith came up and he signed my shirt. This is when Kenny would had his cup of coffee with the pistons. And then Terry Mills came up and signed my shirt too. And then uh we kept trying to wave down Grant Hill but he was I don't know. He he was he was walking back to the trainer's room or something. He was in street clothes. Uh but uh yeah he he didn't unfortunately sign my I- autograph maybe one of these days i'll i'll be able to ask him why he didn't do that uh but probably not but that is uh that's my rick mahorn story the better story that happened a year later uh when we had my birthday party at joe dumars basketball city and joe dumars just somehow showed up and he was there and uh, i challenged him to a one-on-one game and i beat him um 11 to 8 uh no that that didn't happen but he did he did uh he did sign a couple 8 by 10s for me and my friends uh which was awesome so that was cool we got to meet joe dumars on my birthday but that's for another episode those joe dumars episodes are coming up everybody just be patient they're right around the corner you're going to love them
1: we, we we have both had joe had a birthday parties at joe dumars field house apparently
0: is that Good place memories. still open
1: no no i'm pretty sure i i read a couple of years ago that they uh they closed down i want to say because i think it was a year or two ago it wasn't that far along but i'm, I'm pretty sure i read on uh, some news article saying that, that they were, yeah that they were closing down that place just that because there's a lot of great memories there for people of our age at least
0: yeah you could play basketball plus there was like a bar and grill or something upstairs i think too if i'm not mistaken
1: yeah, that was a cool place yeah
0: um Anyhow, that that will do it for our Rick Mahorn episode this week. Um, the Pistons are going to be on about 10 minutes. I am excited. Uh, uh, we, next, next Piston that we've got, we're not going to tell you who he is. Not yet. But I will give you a clue, as I always do. You can find this next player on the elemental chart. There you go. You 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 figure it out from there. For our next episode coming up next week, we're going to be doing the 1991 NBA Draft. We're getting ever closer to that 96 NBA Draft. We're almost there. It's going to be actually the week of Christmas. So cancel anything that you had going on with your family that week uh, and, and get yourself to a place where you can listen to podcasts because we're doing the 1996 redraft soon. In Christmas week, um, it's going to be your present from from Bad Boys and Beyond. But uh, 1991, we got Grandmama, we got Kenny Anderson, Dikembe, Steve Smith, uh, Terrell Brandon. There's a lot of great players in here. A lot of former Pistons here, too. Uh, uh, Stacy Ogman. I think Mark Macon may have had a cup of coffee with the Pistons. Uh, yeah, there's some guys. There's some... LeBradford Smith. Uh, did he play for the Pistons? No, he did not
1: oh no he just pissed
0: michael jordan off yeah yeah he did and and uh, doug overton that's a that's he was actually what a pistons draft pick that year so there's a lot of uh a lot of things to talk about i look forward to doing that one and we'll even have some thoughts on some preseason games for you next time but until then thank you for listening and we will see you next week with the 1991 nba draft